The Communes of Rojava, a model in societal self-direction. In Rojava, power is decentralized to the point where neighbors make most decisions that affect them in a body called a commune. This is nothing like a commune in the US. It is essentially a neighborhood assembly, made of 100 to 150 families or so, and instead of politicians deciding what norms should govern their community, they all do through directly democratic structures. Each person living within the commune can represent themselves directly within the commune assembly. The commune is used on a principle that most of us know intrinsically. Nobody knows better what you and your neighbors need than you and your neighbors yourselves. Communes are linked together through elected and removable spokespersons, one woman and one man, to form a neighborhood council and neighborhoods are linked to form city councils, and so on and so forth. This is a bottom-up or horizontal system of organizing society. The larger the area of administration a council has, the less power it has. For example, in the largest city in Jazeera Canton, Kamislo, there is a neighborhood called Corniche. In Corniche, there are 58 communes. Of these communes, three are Assyrian and Armenian, three Arabic, and 52 Arabic and Kurdish mixed. These 58 communes from the, form the Corniche Neighborhood Assembly, but the heart of power remains in the individual communes themselves. Women and young people also can, and do, organize their own communes separately. The commune is made up of committees which residents can sign up for. To name a few, the Women's Committee, the Youth Committee, Healthcare Committee, Economic Committee, Safety Committee, Neighborhood Defense Groups, and Peace Committee, Transformative Justice says the first line of defense. In order to really understand how communes work, we have to go through the committees one by one. Defense Committee, or Safety Committee. In Rojava, the people living there are multi-ethnic, multi-religious, and wary of state power and male domination. So, they make it their goal to decentralize knowledge, power, and responsibility as much as possible so that no one can dominate anyone else. In 2015, communes all over Rojava started forming the HPC, Self-Defense Forces, and the HPC Jin, an autonomous women's self-defense force, to replace the regular police, Aseish. The HPC is a city-wide defense force made up of two directly elected members from each commune. These two elected security members are accountable to the mandates of the directly democratic assemblies in the communes and can only act as instructed by the people who actually live in the communes. They are trained in self-defense, feminism, weapons, tactics, and ideology. The ideology being democratic confederalism, stateless democracy, that is driving the revolution in Rojava. 
They can be immediately recalled by the direct democratic assembly of the residents if they violate their mandate or act against what they were told in any way. Beyond this, as in the militias of the YPJ, YPG, as in the communes themselves, and as nearly every institution in Rojava, HPC members undergo what is called technil, a public meeting of community members where they are encouraged to criticize their own failures, those of each other, and let others criticize them. These meetings do not carry authority or force, but are just public suggestions that keep people from getting too full of themselves or from latching on to too much power. The HPC members rotate and take turns training everyone in the commune in self-defense, with the goal of eventually every member of the commune serving in the role at some point, so that power is decentralized and there is no need for an official police force. As most decisions that affect a commune are made by the residents themselves, they deal with much less crime in the first place. Why break rules you yourself made, argued, and voted on? So, how does this structure differ from a police force? Well, there are several key ways. One, every single member comes from the community and is directly elected by the community. Two, they only enforce decisions that every community member gets a say on and only act as instructed by the community. Three, they can immediately be stripped of power if they violate the mandate of the community. And four, they rotate and their power is eventually dispersed to everyone so that safety becomes not the responsibility of a special professional body, but of the whole of the community. Health Committee As I said before, the more knowledge is concentrated into the minds of a few people, the more likelihood those people can create an oppressive power dynamic over those who depend on them. For those living in the communes, access to good healthcare is vital, especially in an area always under threat by hostile states and fundamentalist groups. In such a situation, it benefits no one for health knowledge to remain the domain of professionals. The people of Rojava see the dispersal of this knowledge as the reclamation of traditional knowledge that had once been passed down through women, but had been stolen from them by the state, guarded by powerful men, and sold back to the people for profit. As Haval Azad, a member of the health committee for Jazeera Canton pointed out, the problem is that before the revolution, there was a deep connection between health and the power of the state. So we are building up a new system with a new basis, trying to remove this connection. Health is one of the key areas which is represented by specific structures and institutions in the new system. So the main aims for health in Rojava are one, to solve the problem of relations between health and power, or the party. Two, to critique and rebuild the relationship between society and doctors. And three, to return ownership of health to society. Everything is centered around self-organized committees, and if we organize around these committees, the state will disappear. So how is health knowledge and care decentralized at the commune level. As I said before, the goal is to decrease reliance on professionals whenever possible. To do this, each commune elects two heads of the health committee, one man, one woman, who are trained by doctors. These co-chairs then train every commune member who wants to learn 
in basic first aid, and often even more advanced aid. This keeps valuable health knowledge from being centralized and allows life-saving action to be dispersed. The communal healthcare model seeks to combine the latest in medical technology and research with traditional natural medicine without discounting the value of either. In April of this year, Halange, village near Kobani, was reported to have achieved medical autonomy through their self-organization and communes. Four of the communes in the village, together part of the House of Communes, established a medical center for themselves and the surrounding area. The villagers chipped in what they could to buy pressure gauges, sugar testers, and other medical tools such as sterilizers and syringes to be stored in the village medical center. The role of natural medicine is encouraged by education so people can learn about their own bodies and some communes are even coordinating excursions for gathering herbs to start to get back the wealth of the local knowledge that 5,000 years of state and patriarchal systems have attempted to destroy. From Kandil, a region in Iraq where Kurds have formed some autonomous villages also under democratic confederalism, we have the example of the village of Binar, where residents volunteer to plant and harvest the sumac herb together taking what they need for themselves and distributing the rest to relatives and neighbors. A resident, Amin Mehamed, told a journalist, Sumac contains many healthy features. It is also used as a medicine for many health issues. It is effective against high blood pressure, it strengthens the gums, and is very beneficial for children as well. But it should be enjoyed only in healthy moderation and not in abundance. It is also deemed a medicinal herb. It grows in almost the entire region, and it is also effective against diabetes. An important aspect that cannot be overlooked is women's health needs and the way in which women are organizing to meet them. Again, we can turn to Haval Azar. The point is to give people education, at the commune level, so that they can have the knowledge and decide for themselves. In this education, people are made to think about for example, the consequences of having many children if you do not have any money, and what the future might be like for your children. People are thus given the chance to decide for themselves how many children they want to have. Women can use this knowledge how they would like and have easy access to birth control. The last crucial piece of the health committee is prevention of illness in the first place. Haval Azad noted how states spend tons of money on treating illnesses but don't put the same resources into prevention. I'll close this section with her words. The state system looks at society as if it, it is sick and needs to be cured, but it is the system itself that is the illness of society. The Peace and Consensus Committee. A common problem facing much of Western society especially in suburbs sick with social isolation and atomization, is our knee-jerk response to any slight annoyance from our neighbors just to call the police instead of actually having face-to-face -face conversations with our neighbors. The suburbs seem to me like the antithesis of the Rojava commune. They are largely places to return to after a long day at work, maybe wave to our neighbors as we get the mail, and then rush inside to watch some mindless TV and rest before having to start the day all over again the next day. Outsourcing our conflicts to the police is the easy way out. And over time, 
We have forgotten how to handle things ourselves or on a communal level. Out of sight, out of mind. One phone call, and we never even have to follow up to hear whether our neighbor was locked in a cage or ground through the gears of a faceless court system. We have already talked about how rapid response to an issue is handled differently in Rojava than in most anywhere else, with elected and accountable community members rather than a professional police force. But what about justice? How would a commune take on a project like that? Are there courts in Rojava? Yes, there are courts. We could do a whole video on how these differ to American courts, but since we are focusing more locally on the communes, Suffice it to say that in Rojava, only about one-third of social disputes ever reach a court. Every other dispute is solved within the communes themselves through the Peace and Consensus Committees. These have a long history in areas where democratic confederalism took hold, working clandestinely until the revolution. Peace and Consensus Committees are organized bodies in every commune in which neighbors try to resolve disputes through consensus. They usually meet in informal places like homes, meeting houses, and the like. These committees have a dual structure. The general committees are responsible for conflicts and crimes. The women's commissions are responsible for cases of patriarchal violence, forced marriage, plural marriage, and so on. They are directly attached to the women's organization Congrea Star. In Rojava, conflicts arising from patriarchal violence are not to be judged by men. Every resident of the commune comes together to elect the five to nine people who make up the committee, with at least 40% of the members required to be women. The committee members are usually those with a reputation for bringing together conflicting partners. Like the HPC, rotation is usually frequent, so everyone eventually gets the experience of peacemaking. The goal of these committees is not to focus on punishment or blame, but rather to achieve a consensus between disputants. If someone commits an action that is outside community norms, the communes seek to get to the bottom of the person's reasonings and understand the conditions that led the person to harm others. They are guided by the question, how can we eliminate the conditions causing this person to harm? Instead of, how can we harm this person who harmed others? Of course, if it turns out that the community norm a person broke no longer makes sense to the people living there, it can easily be changed thanks to the flexibility of direct democracy in the commune system. Unlike a rigid system of laws that are written by a few and imposed on the majority of people who have no say in them, the rules that govern the communes are subject to change with ease based on the actual needs and decisions of the people affected by them. Many cases in the committees are resolved through dialogue and consensus among all parties and the committee members. But sometimes, community sanctions may need to be brought towards an individual or group. In most cases, this would mean community work, or work for the people who were hurt by their actions. There could also be a period of education related to the offense, lasting until the community members are convinced that the person is changed. For example, Polluters would probably go to an academy to learn about ecology and why polluting is bad. Other sanctions could be a fine, work in a cooperative or public service, exclusion from the commune, social isolation, for some people the hardest of all, boycott if the convicted person is a shop, temporary relocation to another neighborhood, and seclusion from some public rights, 
Most famously, many long-standing blood feuds that could never be resolved through any state or elder-based system were finally resolved through the Commune's peace and consensus committees without trial. Only the worst cases or disputes that can't be solved go to anything like a traditional court, and even then, they usually go through multiple levels of mediation-based, restorative justice-driven assemblies at various levels first. Economic Committee Solve your problems yourself and do not wait for others to do it. Motto of Shekso Village, Kamishlo Countryside A growing part of Rojava's economy is the cooperative. Cooperatives are democratically controlled by all of the participants, without control by bosses or state bureaucrats. Often in Rojava, it is participants of the communes who decide what cooperatives to open. This method might be even more representative than worker-owned cooperatives because the entire community, even beyond those who work at a business, are often affected by the decisions made by it, and here they too get a say. An economy based on participatory democracy instead of managerial feudalism encourages the consideration of factors beyond just money. A community is never going to vote to pollute their own neighborhood, for example. The current global economy allows people, especially CEOs and executives, to make the decisions that affect the lives of many, but avoid dealing with any of the consequences. The cooperative economy in Rojava is an antidote to this. I should stress that cooperatives have been much slower to develop than other structures of the revolution in Rojava. The Syrian regime for years imposed monocropping of wheat controlled by large landowners on the region, and Rojava's economy was dependent on other parts of Syria before the war. Since the war, the region has been under embargo from all sides, including from Turkey and the much more state-capitalist-oriented Kurdish regional government in Iraq. The economy before the war was also very much futile. Unlike many radical revolutions, this one was not accompanied by massive expropriations of private lands or forced collectivizations. The revolutionaries in Rojava prefer a slow-going, voluntary building of a social economy from the ground up. Radical change, in their minds, is much longer-lasting and more deeply rooted in society when it is done through building consensus with many sectors of society. This means face-to-face -face meetings, education and public service announcements, incentivizing cooperation, etc. Besides, many plots of lands have been owned by families, many of them Arabs, for generations and some sort of expropriation of these lands could lead to ethnic conflict, entirely contradictory to the democratic confederalist project of ethnic pluralism. Land and businesses possessed and worked by individuals and families is perfectly tolerated, in fact, guaranteed in the social contract. But cooperation is incentivized in a way similar to how large corporate entities are in the United States. These incentives range from subsidies, tax breaks, municipalities providing tools and machinery, trade and production cooperatives offering reduced prices, trade unions assisting with engineers and specialized workers, Etc. Those who prefer to work within a more hierarchical or capitalist paradigm can do so. 
they may just have limited access to the communal economic network. The incentives have made a difference. Before the war, cooperatives were very rare in the region. Now, all cooperatives make up 7% of Jazeera Canton's economy alone, with cooperatives solely run by women making up 3% of the entire economy. There are 87 cooperatives in Jazeera Canton alone, comprising more than 30,000 participants, according to Hoar News. Kobane's cooperative section is even more advanced. No region of Rojava had more cooperatives than Afrin, but sadly, all of that has been lost thanks to Turkey and Salafist groups' invasion and occupation of Afrin earlier this year. However, refugees from Afrin immediately organized themselves into communes in their new homes and will carry their social economy with them. Cooperatives aren't limited to the cities, but are growing in the countryside too. If you will allow me to read an extended excerpt from cooperativeeconomy.info, the best source on cooperatives in Rojava. I think it'll provide some valuable insight. Jarudier is located in the Barav region of Derek. The Shahid Kani commune includes an agricultural cooperative with 26 members. and the three-acre field, all cooperative members participate in the work. There are six groups with five members each. Every group works for one day, and every Friday, all groups participate. The aim of the cooperative is to revive the communal and natural village livelihood. Accordingly, a common program has been made to carry out farming and irrigation, and things like that. The cultivated products are sold in the Derek market, and the revenue is distributed equally to all cooperative members. Children have also been involved in the activities. Going to the fields with their families, the children play with their peers in the spacious and communally cultivated fields. This village is an economic commune that decided democratically to communalize its economy. Most villages and cities in Rojava have a mix of social-oriented and individually-oriented economies. Many communes also pool money to provide a safety net for their members, reminiscent of that once provided to many Americans through fraternal organizations like the Lions Club, Odd Fellows, and similar organizations. For example, in the village of Shekso in Kamishlo, there is a common fund from which everyone can benefit on occasions such as illnesses, deaths, and weddings. This fund is mainly used by economically ill-posed residents in emergencies. As 80-year-old Mohamed Ali Kute told the Anha News Agency, all villagers pay monthly into the fund according to their financial resources. Finally, communes also work like the bulk buying cooperatives that have been taking off in the US and the UK recently. A commune buys essential food products, sugar, salt, bulker, oil, bread, etc and other important goods directly from producers and wholesalers for around 20-35% to 35% cheaper. If there are cooperatives that produce or trade in these goods, the cooperatives are favored. The commune also procures generators to create electricity for the households. The Education Committee The Rojava Revolution is a backlash against the hierarchical state mentality in its entirety and one of the places this mentality is deepest embedded all over the world is in education. 
The Syrian regime's schools were centered on the idea of one language, one nation, one state, one flag, leaving out all ethnic groups other than Arabs, all religions other than Islam, all of their identities than those bound up with the nation-state. Schools are one of the few areas where the Syrian state retains some sort of power base in Rojava, and the regime still pays many teachers, but since people organize themselves into communes, they are starting to organize their own autonomous schools to replace the regimes. In mixed ethnicity communes, the first priority in education is to make sure that students can learn their own language and about their own cultures, while also encouraging cooperation between cultures and sharing of each other's languages. But crucially, the teachers in Rojava, often elected and sent out by the communes, are seen more as facilitators and as equals to their students. The educational philosophy associated with the radical decentralization in the communes recognizes that teachers have just as much to learn from their students as the other way around. What gets taught to students usually depends on joint processes between students, teachers, families, and civil society organizations and can differ from commune to commune. Techmil is a part of daily and weekly life inside Rojava's autonomous schools, academies, workshops, and universities. Students are encouraged to criticize their teachers' methods in an effort to better their education and diffuse hierarchies that might grow up between teachers and students. There are a wide range of educational options available to students in Rojava, most organized at the communal level. The schools are somewhat similar to schools everywhere else, except that the classes are more project-based, students have much more say in decision-making, and teachers are seen as facilitators, not in charge. And testing is very much de-emphasized. But, like schools elsewhere, they are often housed in similar buildings, for similar hours, and similar times a year. This is called, quote, open education, the meaning of which will be clear when I explain closed education shortly. On the other end of the spectrum are the academies, which are usually much more specialized. There are genealogy academies, open to women and men, but studying women's science, which I'll talk about more later, self-defense academies, ecological academies, internationalist academies for foreign volunteers, health academies, etc. Here, a more holistic approach is taken. While in the academy, the school becomes your community. Students and teachers study together, live together, cook together, clean together. Oftentimes in an academy, the students and teachers are working together to do research for a class thesis that they all collaborate on together. Generally, half of the semester is spent on theoretical work and the other half is spent on practical work. The collaboration has the aim to build a democratic and ethical character. From an academy member, Every day, we have two chefs chosen in turn between the students, alternately two men and two women. Every week, we do general cleaning with two groups from a list. We clean up 10 to 12 people together. For everything, there are responsible students, from cleaning to the kitchen, passing through the library, other common needs, and so on. Some academies practice the, quote, open education model, but most are, quote, closed education. This education is intensive and meant to eliminate distraction for the time of study. Attendees give up their cell phones for the whole week. They wake up at 6 a.m. on most days and usually start off with 30 minutes of exercise or sports in which teachers also participate. They follow by cooking breakfast and then begin four hours of lessons, stop down for a two-hour lunch break, and then resume classes from 2 p.m. to 5 p.m. 
until 7.30 or so, students and teachers cook and eat dinner and socialize, followed by a circle reflection on the day's activities until 9.30, after which is time for relaxation. Sundays through Thursdays are spent like this, and students usually leave campus on Friday or Saturday. To give one concrete example, Congrea Star has opened the Star Academy, a women's academy, in Rimelin, where commune and assembly representatives, as well as the women in the administration of Congrea Star, receive courses based on the specific needs and wishes of the group. The courses that are offered here give some idea of some of the more popular classes offered throughout Rojava. History of the Middle East, History of Kurdistan, Women's History, Genealogy, Economy, Law and Justice, Diplomacy, Gender Equality, Philosophy, Democratic and Federalist Philosophy, Sexism Within Society, Equality and Relationships, Regimes of Truth, that comes from Abdullah Ojalan's uh, theories, Concepts and Analysis. In addition to schools and academies, communes and committees are always organizing workshops that people can attend on subjects like self-defense training, first aid training, driver's education, sports, cinema, cultural activities, and more. Women's Committee. I've saved this topic for last because I think it is the most important to understanding the Rojava Revolution. The women's revolution is the central pillar of the democratic society being built in Rojava. While this is not the first time a revolution has been launched primarily by the efforts of women, no other revolution has gone farther to advance women's freedom. Throughout 20th century revolutions, women's issues were always told to wait. Socialists said that communism must be achieved before women can be free and pushed women to the back burner. Anarchists in Spain were challenged by Mujeres Libres, an organization of anarchist women who refused to be forgotten or pushed aside, despite the substanceless lip service of the most anarchist men. These are two examples of very many. But unlike other radical ideologies, democratic confederalism has women at its very heart. Women were the first colony, and all oppression stems from the first oppression of women. If women aren't free, society cannot be free. These are central beliefs of democratic confederalists. And sure enough, women have played the leading role in the first democratic confederalist revolution. By now, most of us have seen the often fetishized images on Western media of predominantly Kurdish, but also Arab, Chaldean, and Yazidi women taking up arms against the Islamic State. Many commentators miss the mark when they claim that these women are fighting for quote, freedoms, more like those in the West. In fact, the women fighting in the YPJ are pushing much farther and adding groundbreaking additions to women's liberation theory and practice. I must mention that the YPJ is fully autonomous from any male structures, and that female fighters are not subject to orders from male commanders. But there are plenty of videos out there focusing on the broad-scale organization of the women's protection units, but very few focusing on the women's struggle at the communal level. Women in Rojava aren't only fighting against horrifically patriarchal militants like the Islamic State or the Salafist mercenaries backed by the Turkish state. They are fighting against the patriarchal mindset that has dominated the very societies in which they live for thousands of years and which has even been infused into their own thought patterns. Democratic confederalism, while centered in Rojava, northern Syria, 
is also being practiced in other parts of northern Iraq and southern Turkey, and in all of these places, hegemonic patriarchal ideas have encouraged honor killings, exclusion of women from the social sphere, forced marriages, child marriages, torture, and sexual violence against women. While Rojava as a whole banned all of these things as soon as the revolution began, real change happens locally, village to village, street to street, house to house. Women's committees and the communes spend much of their work going door to door and talking to women, hearing their complaints, providing historical perspective, and encouraging women to join the movement. Men are also encouraged to help in the struggle for women's freedom, to, quote, kill the dominant male, unquote, inside of them by educating themselves, listening to the women in their lives, and holding their friends accountable. As feminists were the first and most consistent to point out, patriarchy harms men too, encouraging them to suppress their emotions and to try to fit into an impossible mold of an ideal man. Men benefit from joining the fight against patriarchy by becoming more fully human with all the complexities that entails. Emotions like affection, sadness, touch, fear, and so on. Indeed, education is a massive part of daily life in Rojava, and genealogy, a social science formulated by Kurdish women, meaning the science of women in free life, is institutionalized in all schools, militia academies, HPC training, and youth groups. As I said before, the communes run on direct democracy where any member of the commune who wants to come to a meeting can propose, discuss, debate, and vote on the policies that govern them. Just like in every meeting in Rojava, in order for a commune meeting to have quorum, at least 40% of the attendees have to be women. Also, I mentioned earlier that elected and recallable spokespersons are the mouthpieces of the decisions made by the commune in coordination with other communes and societal groups. At every level of influence, one co-chair has to be a woman and one has to be a man. According to Congrea Star, the women's movement in Rojava, women now play an active role in public life with participation rates for women in the communes averaging between 50 and 70%, and some neighborhoods reaching 100%. Even in the HPC, there is gender parity in who the commune elects to serve them. But in addition to the HPC, there is also the HPC Jin, an autonomous women's defense force also rising out of the communes, but accountable to the Women's Committee and Congress Star, the women's movement. A woman in an institution in Rojava never takes an order from a man. At the communal and municipal levels, there can often be found the Malajin, or women's houses. These are places where women can come to escape domestic violence, to bring their spouses to mediation or accountability, to spread information or learn about women's health, and to organize with other women. This is also where the Women's Own Autonomous Peace and Consensus Committee is often housed to handle cases dealing with violence against women. Women also form their own independent cooperatives and communes to increase their self-sufficiency and react to common problems and desires together. In Jazeera, local women and some of their internationalist friends have helped to build the first totally autonomous women's village, Jinwar. It is worth quoting from their construction committee at length. Quote, at Genoir, a woman will improve her historical and current wisdom in her own academy. She will carry out her healing methods and natural medicines in her own healing houses, and she will educate her children in her own schools. 
she will reclaim the knowledge and science as a woman. With genealogy, the science of women, she will develop social and scientific remediation methods and deepen her knowledge of education, art, production, ecology, economics, demography, health, history, ethics, aesthetics, and of self-defense. Jinwar, the free ecological women's village, an alternative living space to contemporary forms of society, will strengthen her sense of freedom with this level of consciousness and wisdom. Today, war and crime are ubiquitous. The war against democratic, libertarian forces that favor humanity and a diversity of beliefs and ethnicities are under attack by hegemonic powers. This social demolition hurts women and children the most. Against these policies of annihilation, it is our most sacred duty to continue to construct Xinhuar. Some women, victims of war, urgently need these spaces to heal and recover. Other women, who have alternative imaginations of free women's spaces, can join this work to achieve the life they desire in Xinhuar. Young girls and women will take part in the pedagogical development of the community. Using the wise methods of our mothers, who were part of history, Xinhuar women will plant and harvest crops. They will raise the animals and make yogurt and cheese from their milk. Projects that are suitable for the free women's village include building a school or an academy, establishing a natural medicine center, developing a children's park, improving the use of solar energy, building an animal farm, and establishing a sewing workshop, an art center, or a show venue. The village is open to anyone to carry them out. A call for communes everywhere. The commune model is replicable. I believe that we can organize similar structures right here in the United States, in Europe, Africa, Latin America, and Asia too. Not only do I believe we can organize similar structures, but I believe we have no choice. The isolation endemic to our society, the mass shootings, the ecological catastrophes wrought by economies focused on endless growth instead of scaled down to the local level and based on sustainability makes the formation of autonomous communities a necessity. But there are no shortcuts here. We can't just tick a box on a voting machine. We can't ask a politician to build this for us or put our faith in historical inevitability or individualistic lifestyle choices. There is no substitute for the work, the really hard work. But I can promise you, the work we have to do now to organize ourselves will be much easier than the cleanup work required to make our homes and our planet inhabitable again after we push the community building work aside until the next global catastrophe. The Rojava communities built up the groundwork for these structures over the course of years through face-to-face, street-to-street, house-to-house meetings. They did this almost entirely clandestinely at first, but still managed to include as many peaceful and ideas as possible and avoid becoming a vanguard-like, authoritarian group of professional social engineers. They worked, they played, they worked some more, and they kept their eyes out for an opportune moment to go public. They seized the moment when the Syrian regime had largely fled their neighborhoods to focus on the war in the south of the country, and so there was a vacuum to be filled. They had done the hard work, so when the vacuum needed to be filled, they had the structures in place to fill it. Most importantly, they made their work fun. They danced, they sang, they played, they laughed, all throughout the entire process. They didn't get bogged down in meetings more than they had to, 
but they got serious when the times demanded it. The communes made these alternative lives together possible because people have built direct democracy in their neighborhoods. The massive problems we in America need to address, police brutality, climate catastrophe, racism, ethnic and religious hatred, gun violence, misogyny, loneliness, all would be much more easily and systematically addressed if we had a strong communal basis to embark from. In other words, commune. Building communes is something we can do too. We can gather our friends and neighbors, be more social with them, share the joys of what life in common can be, and then realize that together we have power. Like the Black Panthers did, we can stop depending on the state to meet our needs and set up spaces to meet our needs among each other. Unlike the Black Panthers, instead of building up a hierarchy, we can decentralize power by encouraging consensus and participatory decision-making. Even just starting with a barbecue or block party just to get to know your neighbors, doing this a few times a month, and slowly starting to talk about issues affecting you and your neighbors can be a great start. Then you and your neighbors might discuss how you can solve these problems together with what little resources you have instead of waiting on the government or corporations or nonprofits or anyone else but yourselves. Whether it's filling potholes on your street, building a tool library, hosting language lessons, or going to the gun range to learn how to defend yourselves, there's a lot you can do here and now. But when you do these things, don't do them individualistically. These should be things groups of friends, neighbors, and families do together, not hoarding the knowledge themselves, but sharing it with others. We can discuss not calling the cops when we feel unsafe, but relying on each other as first resort. We can set up carpools to doctor's offices, volunteer ourselves to check on elderly folks instead of entrusting that to the police or neglecting them. The social events among neighbors can start ending with quick, more official meetings to actually discuss and vote on community norms that you all take responsibility for implementing and enforcing. Finally, once these alternatives are built, you can discuss how you can defend them and how to spread these ideas to nearby neighborhoods. There is no master plan available to us. As the Zapatistas say, we have to make the road by walking. So let's get started.